I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Erwin Redliner, Director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. Dr. Redliner has co-authored a perspective article on preparing health systems for disasters, such as the recent Hurricane Sandy. Dr. Redliner, in your article, you remark on how smoothly the evacuations of NYU's Langone Medical Center and Bellevue Hospital went. But you raise the question of why such extreme measures were necessary. What factors do you think were being weighed by the decision makers? And in the end, was not evacuating those hospitals in advance a bad call? Well, this is a complicated question. The the evacuation of uh, hospitals in particular, the nursing home evacuations, assisted living facilities have their own problems. But uh, the evacuation of a large medical center with intensive care units and critically ill patients, patients who are dependent on mechanical devices and electronic devices, uh, they are extraordinarily fragile, and that's why they're in the hospital in the first place. Um, the problem with evacuation decision-making is a complicated one because in order to safely evacuate, um, you need time, and the more time you have, the safer the evacuation it will be. So if you could evacuate three or four days before, let's say, landfall of a major hurricane, uh, that gives you the best chance to move patients with deliberate uh, uh, speed but, uh, but also carefully and safely move them to another facility. If you have to evacuate uh, during the evacuation itself, which is what happened with NYU Langone and then uh, Bellevue immediately after, uh, there are extraordinary risks to patients. The problem with the early evacuation, although it might be safer, is that sometimes the weather changes uh, dramatically, the predictions, so that um, a storm that seemed to be headed our way directly all of a sudden has veered off in another direction. And I think um, at least 50% of the time the predictions for landfall for a hurricane uh, tend to be inaccurate. So patients uh, might be put at risk for, for an event if they're evacuated for an event that actually doesn't occur. Hospital officials are obviously acutely aware of that, and nobody wants uh, high-risk, fragile patients to be uh, at uh, extra risk because we're moving them in advance of the storm. So it's, it's actually an ethical and medical dilemma to make that decision. In the case of the hospitals that happen to be in Zone A, which is the flood-prone area of New York City, um, a decision was made to allow the hospitals uh, to decide for themselves, in essence, whether they wanted to evacuate or, alternatively, so-called shelter in place. And here's where we start getting into, into problems, because the hospitals are thinking, well, we'll just keep, we'll keep our patients in, in the hospital, but we'll be prepared enough so we, that we could withstand the, the disaster. And um, that is dependent on a number of systems functioning uh, very smoothly and functioning as predicted and desired. In the case of, uh, of the electrical systems, which are obviously critical to the functioning of a hospital, after the experiences from Katrina, where hospitals' uh, backup generator systems failed during flooding because they were in the basement and they got basically shorted out and they didn't operate, other hospitals around the country, including in New York, said, saw that experience and said, okay, well, we understand now we're going to move our generators to a safe place high on the uh, a high hospital floor or on the roof. What they didn't do, though, was, uh, was make sure that the electrical equipment, which had to drive the fuel for the generators from the basement or first floor up 
to the where the generators actually were, that those fuel pumps and electrical switches weren't themselves vulnerable. So the decision made by the hospitals to shelter in place was based on a premise that turned out not to be true, i.e., that uh, the backup power generation would be safe and secure. It turns out it wasn't. It was highly vulnerable. And that piece of misinformation uh, was the cause of, of having to affect a very dangerous evacuation, although there was no harm done because of the heroism and skill of the evacuators. Uh, the, the problem is still that, that we put a lot of patients at peril uh, all because of faulty information uh, regarding the stability and uh, resiliency of the electrical equipment and the, and the uh, fuel pumps. And in addition, when major medical centers are incapacitated, the stress on other facilities may be extreme. In fact, you, you note that at other New York hospitals, and especially their emergency departments, that kind of stress is still evident. The New York Times has reported that both Beth Israel and New York Presbyterian are overwhelmed. Do you have any sense of how much that reflects the normal volume of, of their emergency rooms plus the normal volume from the closed hospitals and how much it's new illnesses and injuries that are actually related to the storm and the aftermath of the storm? In terms of the consequences for the, the healthcare system and hospital systems in general, when you have to close major uh, medical centers, there's a, there's a background that's actually important here, which is that over the last decade or so, uh, there has been a a tightening of the uh, bed capacity in places like New York City because of cost issues. So having excess beds in general has not been uh, a trend that's been supported. In fact, the opposite is true. So New York City, even over the last 10 years, has lost at least a couple of major hospital facilities so that even before Sandy uh, hit, uh, we had a problem with, uh, with the system's uh, capacity. Uh, ambulatory capacity as well as emergency department capacity uh, really being squeezed. And so when Sandy hit, there was not a tremendous amount of, uh, of surge availability in the rest of the hospitals that were still functioning after NYU Langone and, um, and Bellevue uh, closed so that we have had and will continue to have for the foreseeable future, at least until those other facilities are open, increased pressure on the hospitals that remained to provide the outpatient services for people getting, you know, being followed up for uh, chronic illnesses and so forth, but it also the emergency departments, Bellevue and, MI, and NYU had extremely busy emergency departments, emergency departments which are no longer uh, functioning, so that the stress on the rest of the system, on the hospitals that remained open, is very, very substantial, which, of course, ends up affecting quality of care, wait times, and all sorts of other uh, issues which become evident when we have a, a prolonged situation of overcrowded hospitals. Has there been an increase in illnesses, in, for example, psychiatric illnesses, as you suggested there might be after the storm? Some of this uh, data about specifically what uh, the stress points have resulted in in terms of uh, uh, increased illness, say, among people with uh, increased exacerbation of people with chronic illness uh, or a, uh, a bigger increase in uh, the uh, psychiatric problems that might come to an emergency room. That data is not available yet, and we're expecting that it will be, it will be soon. We're still concerned that that might be the case. We just don't have the information at hand right now to, 
to uh, say definitively that is uh, true or not. But um, the uh, the fact is that the stress and pressure on people uh, who have been affected by the storm has been substantial. This comes anecdotally from uh, from healthcare workers and healthcare teams that we have in the field uh, even now. So what can be done to prepare hospitals for the kind of extended overload that Beth Israel and New York Presbyterian are seeing today? One of the things that has uh, not really gotten a lot of focus uh, in New York City and I think in other cities around the country is the the ambulatory and emergency department stress that is felt from uh, hospitals that have become disabled for whatever reason. There has been much more attention focused on uh, the inpatient side of uh, of the hospital functionality in terms of, uh, you know, if there was a big pandemic or other kind of uh, major uh, public health calamity, that there has been thinking about how to uh, develop enough um, surge capacity to accommodate at least a good part of uh, the demand from those kinds of uh, circumstances. But there has been relatively very little thinking about uh, what that means for the ambulatory services, and I think this is something that um, people are now waking up to. And I, unfortunately, I don't think there's been a lot of uh, far-ranging thinking about how to accommodate big surges in in uh, ambulatory uh, capacity or emergency department capacity uh, in the aftermath of a disaster. In fact, um, when St. Vincent's Hospital, a hospital in the lower part of Manhattan, was closed a couple of years ago, it was closed rather abruptly without really any substantial uh, planning for how the remaining hospitals would accommodate what had been a large emergency department volume uh, happening in St. Vincent's. But, and so the hospitals really struggled to accommodate. But this was also an acute closure of very major medical centers and uh, with really very little warning in terms of what needed to happen in the ambulatory division. I, I, I don't think that's sorted out yet, and there certainly is no plan for how that's going to get better in the future or for future disasters. It's, it's, it's on the to-do list, so to speak, for, for officials here in New York. And as regards the evacuated hospitals, do you know the status of the buildings there and whether, whether and when they'll be reopening? As you can imagine, decisions about the reopening of hospitals that were shut uh, during the emergency is a very complicated one. It's really obviously not a medical question. It's a question of a very careful engineering and, and uh, structural analysis of those facilities uh, and the systems within those facilities and when they can be back up and running. Um, and, uh, you know, there's all sorts of estimates flying around that range from several months to maybe much, much longer than that. Um, and I think uh, we'll know more about this uh, after the first of the year, but uh, very intense analysis of the physical needs and infrastructural needs in those hospitals is, is already taking place. Uh, and, and by the way, it should be noted there's going to be a tremendous cost incurred uh, by the uh, repair and rebuilding of uh, infrastructure in those hospitals. So it's really hard to say, but issues of like mold or uh, you know getting the electrical system back online and 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 determining and making sure there was not any kind of structural weakness that uh, inc- occurred as a result of the of the soaking uh, storm and storm surge. And how about New Jersey, which was very hard hit too? 
How well were the healthcare institutions there prepared for this storm, and how's the state recovering? Uh, New Jersey is uh, is doing uh, actually reasonably well. There are some uh, there are some issues in New Jersey about uh, where people are going to be uh, sheltered for the long term. This is uh, this is pertaining to people who are uh, in communities that have been really quite destroyed and, and are going to now have to be individuals and families needing to be displaced for very long periods of time. So. Uh, they're still working on on how that's going to be accommodated by a healthcare system that's going to have to uh, make sure that uh, that the people who have chronic medical illnesses or develop acute uh, surgical or medical situations, how and where they're going to get their health care is something that is uh, really uh, in play right now. But but generally speaking, uh, New Jersey is a pretty uh, uh, pretty proactive uh, healthcare. Uh, Healthcare uh, infrastructure on the public side, and, uh, and and I think they're they're doing reasonably well right now. Another recent perspective article focused on the effect of storms on non-hospitalized populations with functional needs, people who depend on home nursing, on personal care attendants, on medical technology that requires electricity. What happened to New York and New Jersey residents with functional needs of that order? And what kinds of steps are being taken to ensure that they'll be safe the next time something like this happens? One of the biggest problems that uh, we rapidly became aware of uh, were, in fact, those populations who were not in the hospital or not in a facility of some sort. Um, There are the hundreds of thousands of uh, New Yorkers or New Jersey residents uh, who were living on their own or either, you know, homebound uh, individuals with uh, people with disabilities or chronic medical conditions that were highly dependent on services being delivered to them or going out for ambulatory services. Uh, it also included just frail elderly people living in on high floors in uh, uh, tall elevator buildings uh, who had to sustain lots of uh, of uh, problems during a time when the electricity was off, the elevators weren't running, communication was down, and they couldn't even communicate their needs. So I think uh, one of the things that we are very concerned about and that the uh, uh, the uh, piece in the New England Journal by uh, Jan and Lurie uh, pointed out very strongly uh, was that we're going to have to develop systems that are much more robust in two aspects. One is how do we identify? Do we need registries, or what do we need to make sure that we know where these vulnerable people are who are not in hospitals? And secondly, what exactly are the systems that need to be in place to make sure that those uh, individuals are uh, protected and cared for uh, at time of great need? And, you know, uh, to me, I must say, uh, sort of a, as, a, as a side note, that, that really the success of our responding uh, to a major disaster, as far as I'm concerned, can be measured in terms of how well we do in protecting and caring for the most vulnerable individuals. You know, and those people who are already uh, resilient before and during the storm, who are healthy and active and young and can deal with uh, with stress, uh, will certainly have needs. But it's it's really, in some ways, uh, far less stressful, traumatic, and difficult than, uh, you know, an 85-year-old uh, person who's got uh, 
some disabilities living on the top floor of a building that requires an elevator. It's a whole different agenda, but one that we really do have to pay attention to because uh, they will really need uh, organization and planning before and highly effective, efficient um, uh, services delivered um, in a structured way in the aftermath. You say, too, in your article that we need to do a better job applying lessons from past disasters. Were there lessons from Hurricane Katrina, for example, that were not applied in this case? I can't quite think of any problem or challenge that we had in New York City, for instance, uh, as a result of Hurricane Sandy that was not forewarned by uh, challenges and problems they had uh, in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we, we don't do well in learning the lessons from previous disasters. Either we don't learn the lessons or we structure responses that uh, may have fit some specific challenge that we saw in the last disaster but doesn't really apply to what we're seeing in the next disaster. So uh, I think one of the great difficulties in let's call it the science of disaster planning and disaster response is that much of what we do and much of how we plan is not in any way evidence-based. We end up planning because through anecdote or personal feelings or other kinds of, uh, of uh, processes, which leave us to repeat the mistakes of the past. It's really quite unfortunate. And this, uh, one of the antidotes to that is, is having a lot more academic centers that, are, that have been actually focused on doing research that matters, is what I would say here. And, uh, uh, for instance, the decisions about... Um, uh, sheltering in place or evacuating hospital populations and, and nursing home and assisted living populations. Um, the uh, commissioner of uh, the, uh, the state uh, health, health commissioner for New York, uh, Nirav Shah, pointed out that, uh, quite rightly, that there were some studies done after Katrina which showed high fatality rates of evacuated elderly people or frail people from nursing homes uh, in New Orleans, but that these fatalities did not occur immediately, but they did occur and were statistically significant uh, 90 or 120 days later. Um, and that becomes a factor then in deciding whether we're going to try to evacuate or try to stay uh, sheltering in place. So I, I think what I'd say about that is uh, we have to pay a lot more attention to making sure we've learned and applied the lessons of the past and making sure that we've done and we're doing the science and the research to better inform uh, disaster policymaking uh, going forward. And what, to your mind, are the most critical preventive interventions that we should be looking at? Well, uh, among the things that we should be looking at going forward is, uh, number one, would be a lot more robust monitoring of the state of preparedness and the resiliency of critical systems in hospitals. And, of course, the, the key example here is the backup uh, power generation systems so that we've not only tested the generator itself, but we have serious experts review the entire process from uh, top to bottom. So uh, where's the fuel coming from? How does the fuel get from uh, wherever it's stored to the generators? Uh, what is the supply chain of the fuel? What are the electrical uh, systems within the hospital to make sure the pumping occurs and so forth, and are all those 
basically um, as resilient, made as resilient as possible to whatever conditions we might have. So, uh, and who's going to expect that? There should be a much more rigorous, robust certification processes uh, to make sure that hospitals are, in fact, able to shelter in place and that the appropriate steps and monitoring has actually taken place. And the second thing is that, uh, as we were talking about before, the need to uh, understand where the most vulnerable people are that are not in hospitals and in the healthcare facilities, uh, but are in the communities. Where are they? Who are they? What do they need? And how we're going to make sure their needs get met uh, is, to me, one of the most important challenges we face as we look to make us more disaster ready for the future. Thank you, Dr. Redliner.